Well, it's good to, to be back with you guys. For those of you who maybe are new-ish, well, not even new-ish, three months, whatever. Um, <clears throat> my name's Sean Cross. Uh, I used to be on staff here at Grace, and I'm currently living in Washington, well, Arlington, Virginia, preparing to plant a church in Washington, D.C. So uh, I've been there for three months-ish. My family has been with me for two of them, um, and it's, it's been good. Uh, D.C., <clears throat> it's, it's funny uh, going, so I, I grew up in Northern Virginia, uh, and going back, it's, it's a little bit like uh, going back to Narnia, um, <laughs> except that, like, except that um, instead of the air making you, like, run faster and longer, uh, I speak faster, and I'm quick to honk the horn, right? And so I'm just angrier on the road. Um, so it's, it's good to be, to be back home. Um, uh, I'll just to share a little bit about how things are, are going. I'm currently uh, working with a church called Redeemer Church of Arlington. Um, and right now they're meeting in Rosalind. And um, Rosalind is kind of just right across the river from D.C., uh, and so part of my job responsibilities uh, or the things that I'm doing to prepare is uh, I have to meet 25 new people a week. Um, and so for those of you who know how extroverted I am, you know how wonderful a task that is. Um, but it's, it's really helpful because part of what I'm doing is learning the city, learning the rhythms of the city, learning the values of the people of the city, um, learning what... what what DC is, who DC is, and I, I get to have some great conversations. Um, some great, we've we've gotten to know our neighbors really well, um, and the Lord has just really blessed us by giving us neighbors that we can share life with. Uh, we get to uh, have fun parties with our neighbors and our friends from church, and so we're having Christians and and non Christians together and just talking and getting to hear so much about what drives people and what drives that city and and it's amazing we have a lot of questions and and less political questions than or, or conversations than maybe you'd anticipate in d c uh, but even when they're politically minded they're not really about politics because people here I'm starting a church and people here I'm planning a church and they have questions whether it's about marriage and how God can define marriage in what way or whether it's about uh, suffering and war or whatever it is with relation to God, uh, the, the questions always sort of come back to this main idea of uh, just exactly who does God think he is. Um, and so it's really, if there is a God, why, why does he care about these things? Uh, uh, in, in essence, what they're doing is they're, they're putting God to the test. They're, they're, they're trying God. Um, and, and this is the heart of every conversation with an unbeliever I've had has come back to that. Um, God is on trial in their hearts and, and, and in their minds. And before we were believers, it was the same for us. In fact, even as believers, we're, we're the same way. We ask ourselves, how can God say this and it be so? How can God love me and allow these things to happen? Time and time again, we're constantly, constantly putting Jesus, putting God on trial. And so when Brad asked me to, to preach... Uh, this this morning, um, and I looked at the text. It's 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 actually, um, it's it's interesting that this is where we are. Jesus is on trial. Uh, we're we're in Mark chapter fourteen, um, and Jesus is on trial. Uh, and and I, I want you to know that even though this is a very 
actual historical trial, a courtroom, an event. This is what's happening in all of our hearts. And this is what's happening in the hearts of the unbelieving neighbors, co-workers, uh, friends that you have. Jesus is on trial. And for some of you who are here, maybe you're, you're new to the church, you're new to Christianity, you're, you're not even a believer. Um, <clears throat> first of all, great. We, I'm so thankful that you're here. I'm thankful that you're at Grace Community Church where, where you can hear the gospel and you can hear it in a safe way. I'm glad that you're exploring the faith. Um, <clears throat> but wherever you are in your walk with Jesus, right now, Jesus is on, on trial in your heart, whether you know it or not. Uh, and so we find ourselves in this text with Jesus on trial again. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to work through the text. And I want to pull out three things, really, two, two and a half things uh, that that point to why this text is so radical, why this text is so foundational for who we are as believers. All right, and so if you would, just go ahead and turn with me to Mark uh, 14. Uh, We're going to start in verse 53. We're going to finish out the chapter uh, but for this first bit, we're just going to read through 65. So if you would stand with me and, and let's read God's word together. <clears throat> and they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made... With hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he, Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Um, Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you that in it you reveal to us the truth of your gospel. And so I pray this morning that we would hear good news. And that our hearts would receive that good news with gladness. And that our lives would be transformed by belief in the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. We love you. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, you can be seated. <clears throat> So here we are, nearing the end of Mark, nearing the end of Jesus' life. 
Uh, Jesus is on trial, and, and if you are paying attention, if you're hearing the story, you know this is not an ordinary trial. This trial is vastly different from how a trial is supposed to run. Even now in the West, thousands of years later, if we saw this on court TV or whatever, we'd say something isn't right about this. This isn't a trial. This, this is just a mess. Uh, Jesus is on trial. Jesus is sitting there, and they're bringing people who are making testimony against Jesus. And, and everyone is saying something about Jesus, but nobody is saying the same things. Right? There's a lot of different witnesses. There are a lot of different stories about who Jesus is, what he's done, what he said. And here's the thing is that in the ancient Near East, in ancient Israel, that should have been enough for a mistrial. The minute that the first person gave testimony and then the second witness gave testimony that didn't agree, there's no longer a need for a court case. See, this isn't about a fair hearing. This is about the, the council. This is about the Pharisees, the scribes, the people. They, they're angry with Jesus. They hate Jesus. They've hear, heard what he said. They've seen what he's done. He who made them has come into them, and they don't want anything to do with him. They are judging Jesus, but their hearts have already made judgment. And so they're lying about Jesus. It's, it's remarkable what Mark records that they say. What do they say about Jesus? He said, we heard him say this, I will destroy this temple and then in three days build it again. Did Jesus ever say that? No. No, Jesus didn't. If you look at the accounts, all of the accounts, what Jesus says is destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it again. And, of course, then we get the, the editor's note that he was talking about the temple of his body. But he never said that he would destroy the temple. And, and do you hear what they're saying? Do you, do you see how big that? The temple is as big as it gets in Judaism. To destroy the temple is, is the most heinous of crimes. It's, it's blasphemy. It's the place where God dwells with his people. And so immediately they're saying, Jesus has come to attack and destroy our way of life. Which, ironically enough, they were right. But he didn't say, he never said, I will destroy this temple. He said, destroy this temple. In fact, the implied, the implied actor in that is you. Jesus' prophetic utterance is, you will destroy this temple. And in three days I'll build it again. And so Jesus is sitting here as these false accusations are coming against him. And, and the remarkable thing about it, man, is he's silent. He's quiet. I debated whether or not to draw this analogy because there is no analogy between the two. But many of us are old enough to remember the O.J. Simpson trial, right? Okay? <laughs> so O.J. equals not Jesus. Getting that out there. Um, <clears throat> but if you remember, so I was in, uh, I was in middle school at the time, and I remember watching the, the court in school, like in public school, watching the, the, um, the trial. And man, uh, one of the things that kind of convinced me about whatever side I wanted to be on <laughs> was just that no matter what they brought against OJ, like he didn't react. You know, if, 
just think about this for a second. If you're on trial for double murder and you didn't do it, like how passionately every time everybody, somebody said something, you know, like we found a glove, it's his, it has blood on it. You'd be like, no, that's not my glove. Like you would just, surely you'd have some, he just sat there like, mm. but, you know, and then whatever, they found like a Heisman trophy and he still just no reaction whatsoever. OJ did not care and, and it was shocking. Because he was on trial essentially for his life. And Jesus is the the same way here, right? No reaction whatsoever from Jesus. Do you hear these things that they're saying against you? He's asked. And how does he respond? Silence. And so here comes the, the big the hammer. This is, this is amazing to me. After all these false accusations and Jesus' silence, the high priest asks him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And after remaining silent, Jesus doesn't just answer his question. He answers his question plus some, right? Uh, <laughs> are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. That could have been enough, right? And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus doesn't just say, hey, yes, I'm the Messiah. See, you have to understand um, the, the uh, high priest, they were not expecting, like we were, a Messiah who was God. Right? They were just expecting another Jewish guy who was going to come and who was going to free them. There was going to be a political, uh, there was going to be a national uh, rebellion of sorts. He was going to lead them into the new kingdom, but he was not going to be God. He was going to be the Messiah. And so they say, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And really that just means close to God. You have to understand this. In this moment, the high priest is not saying, are you God? He's just asking, are you the Messiah that was promised? And Jesus says, I am. But then he goes further and he says, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven. And he decides, not only am I going to answer the question, I'm going to quote Daniel 7 and Psalm 110, right? Daniel 7 is where Daniel sees this prophecy, and first he sees the Ancient of Days, right, who's God in the heavens, but then he sees one like a son of man seated at the right hand of the glory of God, and that son of man passage, uh, he is seated in the clouds of heaven, Right? And so the clouds of heaven are, are not like the clouds of earth. And some of you may have studied this, you may know this, but the Bible does talk about the clouds of earth every once in a while. And so the clouds of heaven are different. It's not vapor, right? It's not water vapor in the atmosphere. The clouds of heaven, whenever you see them coming, whenever you see them talked about, what it is is the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God. And so what Jesus says is, I'm the Son of Man, talked about in Daniel 7, who sits at the right hand of God the Father himself, and who comes surrounded by the Shekinah glory of God. And not only that, he also quotes Psalm 110, where God says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then do you know what the rest of Psalm 110 is? The servant of the Lord, the Lord who says to my life, it's the one who sat at his right hand coming back and throwing down. 
That's it. It's, it's judgment. You will execute wrath and judgment and vengeance on the nations. That's Psalm 110. And so what Jesus says to them, it's, 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 it's really, it's clever. It's, it's amazing what Jesus says to them. They, they're putting Jesus on trial, and they're saying to Jesus, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, yes, I'm the Messiah, but not only that, I'm God himself, the one who sits in power and the glory of God, and I am the ultimate and righteous and true judge. I judge the earth. Jesus is the great and true judge of the earth. That's huge. Obviously, it's huge. Why? <laughs> Why do I say that? Well, look at their reaction. They, they tear their clothes and they, they begin to beat them. Uh, Tim Keller actually just, he expresses this so well in King's Cross. He says there's an explosion. Like the, the, the place just explodes. You thought it was out of hand before. The place just explodes. When Jesus says, I am the great judge, it explodes. And here's why. Because Jesus now says something that blows all categories that anybody has ever had. I don't know if you, uh, if you studied philosophy at all, if you're interested in philosophy at all. I'll summarize the history of philosophy for you in this. Uh, every philosophical debate, every philosophical shift and swing has been about this is the truest thing that which is ideal that which is kind of in the clouds above us or is it what's real is it what we can see and grasp and feel is the truest truth beyond us is it what we make sense of everything with or is it what we see and sense and perceive uh technical way to say it, is it metaphysical or is it physical is it transcendent or is it eminent? Now you have to understand that everyone thinks in these categories, whether you, you know it or not or, or articulate it in those categories or not, you're trying to figure out what the real is. And so some people, they, they turn to spirituality. And when I say that, I mean that more in an Eastern sense. And so what's real is not flesh and bone and what you see. It's, it's in the air and the sky and it's, it's, it's the spirit that can connects us all it's it's the force it's the things that are unseen that's what's real right and then some people are just pure naturalist it's science and reason and what I can sense and perceive what is true and they're putting Jesus on trial and here's what he says I am the ultimate absolute truth in flesh he, he collapses those categories right and so if you're a skeptic or an unbeliever in here this is what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion and distinguishes Jesus from every other religious leader. Every other religious leader says, here, this is truth. Jesus says, I am truth. Every other religion says, here's how you get to heaven. Here's the way to heaven. Jesus says, I am the way to heaven. I am truth in flesh. I am God incarnate. You may think that you judge me, but ultimately I stand in judgment over you. This is this is transformational truth if you grasp it and if you believe it. Truth has become flesh and lived with us. We've we seen it. We read about it. We've heard it testified to. Truth in flesh. He is the ultimate and righteous judge. And they see that. And as we see it, 
Now, we don't see what they see. What they see is their categories exploded. What they hear is blasphemy because they're saying, I think this guy is saying he's equal to God. Yes, he is. That's exactly what he's saying. But what we see is ironic. Because in this moment, what we have is the judge of all the universe on trial. Being tried. This is not the first time this has happened. Uh, if you read through the Gospel of John, you actually see it a lot in John chapter 3. Uh, Nicodemus meets John at, or meets Jesus at night and, and he's trying him. He says, We know that you do these things in the name of God. You know, he's trying him. John the Baptist from prison. Are you the one that we're to expect? Or is there another? Right? And, and even in this, like, there's just stark contrast in how they're coming about putting Jesus on trial. So Nicodemus is coming from a place of arrogance. I don't, I don't believe you are who you say you are. And you, you, you're doing these cute little parlor tricks. But, but you're not the one. Whereas John is saying, look, I followed you and now I'm in prison. You know, What gives? Are you the one? Is this worth it or not? So depending on where you are in life, you may be suffering. And you're asking the question, is this real? Is this worth it? You may be in a place of absolute privilege and wealth and affluence. And you're saying, well, why should I follow this one? I've, I've made it. I've done it. But both of those are putting Jesus on trial. And he's the judge of all things. And so in this story, we see something remarkable. Jesus is on trial. And the question becomes, why? Why is Jesus on trial? Okay. And to answer that, I, I want to actually point to a third time in the Bible, one of the first times that we see it, that God is, is put on, on trial. Uh, and it's... It's in Exodus chapter 17. So if you want to turn there, you can. But in Exodus chapter 17, the people are wandering now through the wilderness. They're thirsty. They're tired. Um, <clears throat> and in true wandering Israelite fashion, they begin to grumble and complain. And they begin to put Moses and God to the test. And so all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. You have to understand when they quarrel with Moses, God's prophet, they're quarreling with God. Jesus makes this clear when he talks to us as disciples. And he says, when they hate you, when they revile you, it's not you they're hating and reviling, it's me, it's, it's Jesus. Right? And in the same way, Moses, is a, he's, he's the prophet of God. He's representing God to the people. The, God, the, the people are quarreling with Moses, but their beef isn't with him, it's with God. And so the people quarreled with him. And said, give us a drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Here we go. Why do you test 
the Lord. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. So they've made their judgment. They put us on trial. They put me on trial. They made their judgment. They found me guilty of neglect, of misleading them, of not caring for them in the way that they want to be cared for. And so they are ready to stone me. They're ready to kill me. And the Lord says to Moses, this is, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. All right, so here's what he says is, all right, then, bring the elders uh, in, in Mark 14, it's the council. Bring the elders and bring your staff. Now the rod, the staff, right? This was not just <clears throat> so that you could walk better, Moses. This is for making judgment and pronouncement. You see it later, kings in the ancient Near East, leaders in the ancient Near East, when they were making court decisions and they would decide, they would use their staff, their rod, to, to make the decree, to make the judgment, to pass the judgment. Think about Esther and how she, people are allowed to speak with the rod when the rod judges and says, you're worthy to speak in this moment. The, this is about judgment. There's a trial, right? And Moses, and God says to Moses, in accordance with how we do trials, bring the elders Bring some of the elders with you and bring your staff. We're going to have judgment here. And then look at what God does. Because at this point, Moses is like, all right, good. Here we go. That's what I'd be thinking anyway. Put God to the test. He part of the Red Sea and you over here asking for water. Um, <clears throat> and, so, and so God says, and, and, and then look at what God says. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people shall drink. Now, this is fascinating, because listen to what God does not simply say. Go strike the rock. God doesn't say, go strike the rock, water will come out, the people will drink. No, what God says is, we're having a judgment. I'm going to sit on the judgment seat of the rock. I will stand on the rock before you. I will be on the rock, then strike the rock. You will strike me. You will, the people deserve judgment. I will sit in the place of judgment. And when you pronounce judgment on me by striking with the rock, water will flow out and they'll have life. This is the gospel. And this is exactly what's happening to Jesus. The judge of all the universe is sitting in judgment, not because those people are mad at him or not because the Pharisees and the scribes think that they're somebody and know that they're somebody. No, he's sitting in judgment for us, for you and for me. The God of the universe who deserves to judge and has the right to judge all of us for our deeds, instead of judging us for our deeds, sits in judgment for us. And as he is hit as he is beat as he's struck life flows out jesus is sitting in trial for you for me this is good news unlike any good news you can imagine see here's the thing is and i love this about the bible the bible describes sin simply as us sitting in the place of God, us putting ourselves in the place of God. And salvation is God turning around and putting himself in our place. This is what Jesus has done. This is good news. This is what the world needs to hear. 
You know, I'm meeting 25 people, and most of them are unbelievers, and most of them are self-sufficient, and most of them have made judgments about Jesus in their head. I know, I've talked to them. And what they don't need is, here are some things that you need to do in order to be worthy of God. What they don't need is some sort of cheap, not really good news gospel. What they need is, you've put Jesus to the test, but here's the thing. He's come down and he's been judged for you. It's free. It's grace. It's done. But they don't just need that. We need it. We need this. Because, see, when you see this, when you see that God is, Jesus is the ultimate judge of the universe, but he, instead of judging in this moment, believe me, he will judge. But in this moment, and time and time again, instead of judging, he sits in the seat of judgment where we ought to be. You have really two two choices. And really, those two choices come before you see Jesus sitting in judgment. They come with Jesus' claim. If, God, if Jesus says, I am God, the one who judges and the one who's deserving of judgment, then your only two options are this. You can either repudiate it. You can call it blasphemy and untruth. You can rip your clothes, your garments, the garments of your heart. Reject it, despise it, like the council. Or you can believe it and follow it. In fact, not just believe it and follow it. You have to give your whole life to it. That's the only reasonable response. Right? If Jesus is saying this, it's either true and it's, or it's not. I'm putting that before you. Either Jesus is speaking the truth, he is the ultimate judge of the universe who was judged in your place, or he's lying. If he is lying, it is not reasonable to say, yeah, I'm cool with Jesus. Or yeah, the Bible, it's got some good stuff in it. Or yeah, I'll go to church. Kind of just in case. If this is true, you have to give your whole life to it. There is no other reasonable option if it's true. And if you don't think it's true, then the only reasonable option is to reject it completely. And see, in, a, in our culture, we don't like to do this. Uh, see, we, we live in D.C. now. Uh, and, and one thing that I've been amazed with is how Many people don't want to be tied down with anything, right? That's why they're 35 and not married. I don't think you have to be married. It's not a big deal. But, like, they've been dating someone for, like, 12 years, and they're living together. And, you know, they have, but I don't want to. Why? Because they want to keep, ultimately, they want to keep their options open. They don't want to tie themselves down with one thing or the other. See, when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to Jesus, he doesn't give you that option, There are two choices. You either reject it as a lie, and hint, if you are living the nominal Christian life, whatever that means, you're rejecting it as a lie. Or you devote your entire being to it. Or it orients everything you do, how you live, how you pray, how how you think about life. It's transformed by the gospel because it's true and it's good news. Because there are implications to the fact that the judge of the universe was judged for you. So here's one of them. Because Jesus was judged for you, you no longer have to live in fear of judgment. Either from God or from other people. How many of you deal with 
the struggle, the fear of man. If I do this, what will they think of me? How will they judge me? You don't have to worry about that. Christ has been judged for you. How many of you still reflect on sin that you committed months, years, decades ago? How many of you are still buried with the weight of the guilt of your sin? You don't have to be. Jesus has been judged. He's been found guilty of your sin. There's this great hymn, His Be the Victor's Name. And one of the verses says this, What though the vile accuser roar of sin that I have done, I know them well and thousands more. Jehovah knows none. None. This is the gospel. This is good news. The sin that you cannot forget, God in Christ Jesus cannot remember. Right? It's Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's one implication. Another is that you are free from sin. Sin doesn't have a hold of you because see, Christ has been judged. He has died. He has risen again. He has defeated sin and death in the grave by becoming sin and death in the grave. Right? He sat in your place. He's been struck by the righteousness of God. You see, the Pharisees and the, the, the scribes and the council spitting on Jesus, hitting Jesus, <laughs> They're not righteous. That really doesn't matter. But in a few weeks, I guess you'll get to it. But Jesus on the cross matters. And so there's a, a man named Kurt Allen uh, who's up in Salarat Church. It's a church in Prince George's County, Maryland, just on the Maryland side of D.C. Uh, <clears throat> and he, he came to speak at our church last couple weeks. Um, and one thing he said that I, I, I can't shake, I can't get out of my head is he said, um, how many of you know the story of Noah? And, and you, you remember the story of Noah, right? Well, in the story of Noah, God pours out his wrath on all flesh because of their wickedness and their sin. He acts in that moment as judge of them, and he pours it out, and he brings this flood, right? Forty days, just water, flood, all things dead. It was the wrath of God poured out in the biggest way that we see in the Old Testament, Honestly, it's, it's the, the, the most amazing, most awful display of the wrath of God. If you think that there is no judgment or wrath in God, there is. Look at the flood. And in that, the wrath of God was poured out. But even in the flood, the full wrath of God was not poured out. Because he saved people and animals. He left a remnant. So if you think about the horror, both existentially and, and just physically of the flood, if you think about the, the weight of the wrath of the flood, now realize this. Think about this, that on the cross, God poured his full wrath out on Jesus, which means that the pain and the angst and the suffering that Jesus felt on the cross was greater than that that came from the flood. Full wrath of God was poured out on Jesus so that we might be saved from sins once for all. That's forever. That's all of our sins. Jesus died for the sin that you haven't committed yet. You are free from sin. 
Christ is enough. You are free to live. I love this. And, and you're free to mess up. And that's actually in the text. So we're, we're going to just finish out the chapter. And, and I think that will be a good stopping point. <clears throat> so what I, what I didn't talk about initially in its order is that in uh, verse 54, we get this odd sentence or two that break up the flow of the narrative, right? <clears throat> so they're leading Jesus to trial. The people are gathering to try Jesus. And right there, there's this blip. <clears throat> Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Okay, so just so you know, the reason that this is in here is to say that the things that happened in the trial and what Peter was doing, that they were concurrent. They were happening at the same time. And this is, this is amazing to me. Because in verse 66, Peter was below in the courtyard. And this is while Jesus is being judged. And one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly, you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, But uh, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is happening at the same time, and you've got to understand this. That Peter's, Peter's just utter passionate denial of Jesus was akin to the trial and the hatred and the beating that the council was giving Jesus. He wasn't in the courtroom ripping his clothes and screaming blasphemy, but his denial was screaming blasphemy. Peter is faithful. Peter's the one who in most of the stories you're like, yeah, that's who I want to be. It's a little presumptuous, but that's who I want to be. And he denies Jesus. But even as he's denying Jesus, Jesus is being judged for him. Even as he is denying Jesus, Jesus is preparing to restore him. Your doubt, your failure, your fear is not greater than the reach of the gospel. You're loved. 
in Jesus. He sat in judgment for you. Will you believe that? Because if you do, it will change everything. It will change the way you interact with people. The way you look at people, you can no longer judge them in arrogance and pride, but rather look on people with love and humility, regardless of their social status, regardless of their race, regardless of their religious creed, regardless of their sexual orientation. You cannot look at them as anything other than a sinner who deserved judgment, who Jesus sat in judgment for. They are you. And Christ died for them. So you cannot judge them. In fact, your response then is to love them by reminding them, by sharing with them, by proclaiming to them as I proclaim to you, as we proclaim to each other the good news that Christ has died in our place, that the judge of the universe has been judged for us. Let's pray.